0: What is happening? This is Ryan for The Scale-Up Show. I have Dorian Sells on today, who's the founder and CEO of Squirrel. And also, Squirrel, not Squirrel, right, is one of the top 100 tech entrepreneurs in Switzerland. uh, And actually is talking deep on composite AI, how to grow revenue with it and some other use cases that they're leveraging. It was also recognized in Gartner's Magic Quadrant for his work there. So you're not going to want to miss it. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to The Scale-Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest today. I have Dorian Sells. Dorian is the co-founder and CEO of Squirrel, which is the semant- which has, I should say, the semantic enterprise search platform for better business decision-making. He's a serial entrepreneur, three-time founder. He's in the Hall of Fame of the Top 100 Digital Shapers of Switzerland, and uh, he's going to talk about some composite AI today. So, Dorian, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man.
1: Thank you, Ryan, for having me. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I, I, I was looking at, you know, prior to having you on and, and looking at, at kind of your background and, and doing the whole research process, um, I really, really liked some of the things that you had on your website and some of the things that you're focused on with AI, specifically composite AI. But before we get into that, I want to hear a real quick revenue rundown in terms of where you're at in the stage of the journey. So where are you guys at in terms of your ARR?
1: We're in our um, uh, journey, sort of sort of the mid-cycle. Um, it's a, a higher single-digit number of AR we do every year. We don't disclose it publicly. Um, but it's a higher single-digit AR number. We grow about 40% per annum um, over the past years. Obviously, for everyone, including us, uh, the COVID I years understand. haven't been that easy. But uh, we're going back into a strong growth mode.
0: OK, excellent. And then what's your primary revenue go-to-market strategy?
1: Uh, we focus on sort of two verticals: financial services and also industrial companies with two specific use cases. One is we call that sales insights that is allow people to drive better decisions uh, with respect to top line impact based on data that normally doesn't get analyzed. Call notes, email, quality reports, all type of interaction elements, feedback as an example from customers where we were able to pretty much accurately tell they are Here are three customers, Ryan, you should call today because there is a risk of churn, there is an opportunity to upsell, or you haven't been in touch with them lately and they start to be a bit frustrated. That's sales, sales insights. We do that for, as I said, the sale, the, the industrial article, but also the financial services article. In the same way, we do also that uh, in the second um, use case that is more targeted towards financial services companies, that's risk insights, where we help. Uh, companies deflect risk um, that's essentially as an example the case with central banks that need to watch over commercial banks and whether they have properly disclosed financial risks say a counterparty risk where often the board needs to ultimately decide on that and you have thousands of pages of reporting that these banks submit to the regulator where we help to identify accurately and and continuously where is the passage as an example that discusses this counterparty risk To allow an auditor to understand and effectively then make a decision whether the bank corresponds to the regulation in place or not. Um, And this helps to make a financial system more resilient and more safe. That's what we do.
0: Yeah. I love that, man. Two critical functions. You got top line and you got security. So what like when you're when you're doing that or, or growing the company, is it a direct sales motion? Is it outbound? Do you have I mean, what's kind of your, your customer acquisition approach and, and your customer yep. acquisition process?
1: Okay. um uh, I, I think um, uh, you're over in Chicago. I'm in Zurich. Uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, water bowls at about the same temperature on both sides of the big pond. Uh, so we don't do something super, super different than probably many, many B2B startups that um, uh, listen to your show. We have uh, an element of outbound. We have an element of inbound. Um, We normally target the business function in each of these use cases um, with a very specific um, uh, kind of like value proposition. In the case of risk, we have now the added advantage that we work for some of the largest central banks like the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, and others uh, that gives us a bit of a reputational plus. So uh, more and more in that tightly knit world of financial regulation, people effectively have heard of us and come to us. That's the nice thing about the inbound and reputation.
0: Excellent, ma'am. So a little bit of combination of everything uh, when it looks like it with inbound, outbound, and then some referrals as well. Yep. So
1: how, how large is your team? We are at the moment across the globe 55. Uh, we have a team in New York, in and around New York. We have a team in London. Uh, HQ is here in Switzerland, but that's not even half the company. And then we have a team in Singapore. The reason we do that, the reason okay. why we localize um, at an early stage is we often work for pretty large enterprise customers. I just named a few. And uh, these folks, um, to get you on board at these institutions, you need to undergo rigorous vetting procedures. And um, one of the elements, obviously, these folks look on this. Do you have a local triggered entity that if things go wrong, they can sue? Um, it's obviously for a Singapore company, uh, banking corporation, much easier to sue a Singapore local company than half around the globe. In another jurisdiction, they don't know anyone. Um, that's why we normally localize um, to play to play to play fair in, in those in those jurisdictions. Also, it's not so much in the industrial side; we have seen that, but more so on the on the financial services side. You sometimes have on premise requirements, and you don't want to fly in, fly out people all day, all week, all year. So, one of the other reasons why we often go local at an early stage.
0: Okay. That makes. I mean, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you're in the financial services space. New York's one of the hubs mm-hmm. of the world, uh, I suppose. From Zurich, it's a quick hop over to the UK, which is another you know banking mm-hmm. district. They got Singapore covered on the Asian side, so uh, totally makes That's sense, true. man. Uh, in terms of how you have that structured. So, are you bootstrapped or are you backed?
1: Um, we initially were bootstrapped, and then we chose at an earlier stage to. Back. Uh, there is, however, a big difference between, say, the US type backed companies, right? That, that an A series raised 10, 50 million bucks. An A series in Switzerland is maybe two, three million to sort of um, put things in perspective, which in the US over the last years hasn't even been a big seed round, right? Uh, rather mediocre seed round. Um, so, yes, we are backed. Um, one of our investors is actually Salesforce. We were one of their first investments on this side of the pond. Um, we also have some business angels a bit of other institutional money Um, out of Switzerland, which is an expensive place. um, No question. It's pretty tough in the B2B place to completely bootstrap that Uh, The requirements in terms of um, enterprise level software that you need to be able to provide uh, at the cost uh, vector that you have here makes it brutally tough to bootstrap such a thing out of out of the gates.
0: Well, that was my question. So, you know, at what point did you decide to shift from being bootstrapped to being backed? And, you know, let's dig a little deeper on that because that's something that's talked about all the time, right? Um, I, I think yeah. I have some understanding or, or some possible uh, hypothesis on why, but would love to hear it straight from your mouth in terms of what you experienced, what time you made that shift, and then, uh, you know, are you happy now that you did?
1: Um, you know, obviously it's the dream of everyone to kind of like take a bootstrap a company from zero to global success. Uh, but you know, for every, and there are only a few people who did that ever. Right. And they're in specific niches where that was possible and I'm happy for them. But you know, for every one of these companies, which, um, is far in between, there are a gazillion others that never made it there. Um, in the case of Switzerland, right. Um, take one of our first customers, um, which actually which actually was Fargo on, on your side of the pond right they come with specific requirements they at the time this a couple of years ago they came with a specific requirement they saw our software were recommended through gartner and said okay we want this but we want that on enterprise level and you need to fulfill the following criteria right so that was not about the software itself but it was about the packaging we had to go um through an entire certification process we had to go through um the packaging and up into the virtualization environment And um, now obviously we went to them and said, okay, guys, you need to pay for that, right? But at the end of the day, um, there was a risk sharing element where they said we go as far as this, but we cannot go further than that. And by the way, we're not in the business of through the subscription payment we do to you to effectively bootstrap your company, right? If you want to do that, we want to love and work with you, um, but we are only willing to share the cost to some extent. The rest you need to bring up. Mm -hmm. And that effectively forced our hand because um, we obviously were keen to do that because of the reputational element next to the IRR that it brought. Um, uh, And then we were simply faced with that gap, right? How do we do that? And that was the moment when um, I actually was in touch with um, an an acquaintance of mine, a friend of mine who brought Tybris from, that's an e-commerce company that was sold for um, about 1.6 or so billion dollars to SAP. And uh, we were in touch with him at the time, and um, he supported us, supports us all the way through. Ariel, fantastic person uh, in every aspect. Um, and that brought us on that course to not just bootstrap that, but go beyond. And then obviously we added to that over the time a bit of um, institutional money. Uh, we were at one stage approach by Salesforce. And if they approach you, find you. You don't necessarily say no, surely not from the perspective of a small European company. and. Um, is it now a good journey or a bad journey? That was your question, right? Um, it has pros and cons, right? You obviously trade a freedom to some extent with uh, you know, being, being scrutinized by very experienced people. But on the other side, that also does well, right? Because even if we've done that game a number of times prior, none of us co-founders, my co-founders and I go 20 years plus back. We've built all those companies together prior but we have not built an international product business so you know to have support of people who've done that is priceless um that's on the upside again so you know at the end of the day um i think it is a question of where you are what maturity of the company there is what market needs you can capture at what stage um and to effectively trade away a bit of your degrees of freedom in return of this type of, of of insight advice and yes indeed also funding um, for us on balance was a good exercise. I don't think we would be where we are today without them helping us.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, I could see with all the regulation, SOC compliance, all those those kind of things for moving up markets, specifically for an enterprise solution with the large financial services companies that you're working with, how that could be a big cost barrier, right? Um, and then building yep. all that security enterprise yep. function in your product as well.
1: Yep, 100%. But, you know, for curiosity, you for curiosity, you said you had a hypothesis. What was your hypothesis, and was your hypothesis slightly different, or was it this?
0: No, it was pretty much aligned. Right? It was it was aligned because the the size of the companies that you're working, plus the mm-hmm. international component, like you, you integrate all those together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I know how highly regulated the financial services side is as well, and so that's kind of where I was leaning on that. That makes sense. Okay. To follow up on that though, like, so so you're backed by Salesforce, right? So, which is amazing. And congrats on that. Cause that's, that's a, a big feat within itself to have a company like that back you. Now, the question I have, and, and these things come up all the time is, even though Salesforce is backing you, have you seen the benefit outside the financial aspect? Like, for example, have they infused you into their marketplace or their other ancillary benefits of being backed by a company like that?
1: Uh, reputation, uh, right? You don't need to explain yourself who you are. If you have such backing, um, that is sort of a due diligence that other people did on behalf of a future customer. Um, that's really one element. The second element, yes, indeed, they gave us always access to, through the pilot management program, to to um, Salesforce, to uh, opportunities. At the end, uh, say a company like Salesforce is a massive juggernaut, right? It's I saw that over the past uh, couple of years literally treble from when we first touched them. And obviously it is not kind of like a red carpet and, 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 and good. You are um, at the end, you maybe get to, to quote Alex Kayal, who did the deal at the time, you maybe get a bit of a privileged access. You, you don't need to haggle around with the doorkeeper whether they would allow you into the room. uh, You you get access to the room, right? But what you make in the room, that's up to you. Uh, They don't do that for you. So yes, uh, it helps, uh, but only so far. Gotcha. That's kind of what I expected.
0: Let's shift gears a little bit here, because, uh, you know, obviously you have a deep level of expertise on one of the hottest topics right now, which is AI. And so, you know, one of the things that you talk about is kind of the end of search and its impact on business decision making, right? With composite mm-hmm. AI. So can you explain mm-hmm. what composite AI is and then, you know, why you feel that way about the end of search and what's going to happen with business?
1: Sure bit of background, Um, some, what was that, 2002, 2003? uh, We started in Switzerland to digitize the yellow pages. You remember those telephone books, Ryan, and probably your listeners too? Unloved, eventually got stacked someplace in in an old place of your house. Um, Nobody uses them today anymore, but they were an extremely lucrative business at the time, right? Um, Many, many small businesses had in the yellow page publication, literally their only way to publish about themselves, so their only way to attract your customers. So it was obvious that this is a place to be in. And we, we went into that place and built what became subsequently Switzerland's largest homegrown search proposition. Um, and for a time, I think we even beat Google at their own game. Um, now, that said, at the time, there were two or three things that struck all to us, right? Uh, you know what my topmost career was? Best restaurant in Zurich. Hmm. Now, what's the best restaurant? <laughs> that is a very contextual question, right? If you're, and obviously, Zurich is much smaller than, uh, say, Chicago or, or New York or so. But if you're in Zurich, depending where you are, it still can be a half an hour to the other side of the town. So the best restaurant, if it's on the other side of the town and you only have 90 minutes, not really a good choice because it takes too long to go there. One vector. Another vector, mm-hmm. you might be a region person, you might be, um, uh, loving Asian food or, or I don't know, some, some some fusion food, whatever it is, right? Simply asking the best restaurant right. in Zurich question doesn't necessarily lead to good result because it's, again, very context-dependent. And the interesting part was that if you went a bit deeper, um, you saw, and by the way, it's not too different in Google at the time and still not today, my average keyword length was 1.23, right? Now, 1.23 keywords means... Um, you say New York rest, which is not true. New York never rests because the restaurant is cut off after t- dot two, three, right? Or you say restaurant new. Well, it might be a new restaurant, but you're mm-hmm. looking for a restaurant in New York. What I want to say with that is um, the interaction of, of a human with a, with a search bar, even it got very natural for all of us over the past 20 years is effectively very unnatural because the way we express what we look for is not the way a search engine traditionally works so the achilles heel of all of those search engines is that an end user cannot properly express what he or she is looking for um, so how do you deal with that um, and that brought us to what we do at scuro and also will now be um, part of that next step revolution everybody has in their hiats chat gpt and all the rest i come to that um so when we started fresh with scuro we always had that vision that if effectively, instead of you going to the information, I try to type in best restaurant in Zurich or so. Why is the best restaurant not coming to me? If if, if that restaurant knows that I love Asian food, I'm in this part of town, and it's going towards 12 o'clock, uh, the best restaurant is probably a very small um, select group of possible choices? Why does that best restaurant not denounce itself to me and say, hey, today we maybe have XYZ special? So instead of you go to information, information comes to you. Now, if you want to make that true, you need a few things, right? Um, you need a contextual understanding of the user. Profiling is a big profession. We did it at the time with local CH. Google does it. We do it today in an enterprise setting. But that's not all. You also need to have a better understanding of the content at hand, especially in an enterprise content situation. um, um, You have often gazillions of documents that are nearly the same, but something different. Give you an example, the holiday form. The 22 holiday form maybe is nearly identical one, like the 23 holiday form. But somebody over in HR uh, had a strike of creativity and changed three things. Now, if you fill out the wrong form because you didn't notice, your holiday request is going to get rejected because you coincidentally got to the 22 form instead of 23 form. Now, you might laugh at that and say, oh, that's just a corner case. I would say, no, it's not. Think of it like this. If you go into a larger, mid-to-large company as a new employee, how do you know what that company knows about products? you do not know you don't even know how the products are called you don't even know how to ask the appropriate question now if you want to resolve such a conundrum what you need to do is you need to go after the data itself and you need to give the data way more structure than before so it's not enough to simply index data you need to understand um, the actual content and obviously us humans immediately understand that but the computer as we all know does not so what we have started to do over the past years, we have started to, on our side, um, develop all types of um, machine learning uh, elements to effectively extract insight out of text down to the level, as an example, to understand, in the case of that industrial company I spoke about at the beginning, where in the text does, an example, does, does, for example, a customer express frustration at certain product characteristics. In the moment, you can capture that and categorize that you can work with it from a computational perspective or in the case of the banking sector where in that 300 page risk assessment does the board talk about a specific counterparty risk oh it does so on page 276 in the third footnote Uh, eight point ariel that you normally overlook but there it is right so we develop all type of these kind of things all fair so we would now be able to find exactly what you need ryan but now we miss another element, and that's the contextualization. So it's not enough to simply know about the counterparty risk, but the counterparty risk is part of a risk categorization. That's where semantics come in. So are you able to link those different risks? Or in the case of that industrial company where a customer voices frustration about a certain product, to which product group does that belong to? And that's a classic case of graph. So in the moment you start to combine graph uh, and and I will simplify here linking of of informational objects with the the the, the type of data driven AI we do, you get what not us is calling that way, but what Gartner is calling it that way, composite AI. What you effectively get into your hands is a computable knowledge object. So if I ask them as an example, as a as a um, person with a gluten intolerance, if I start to type in um a bread recipe the system is knowledgeable enough that it doesn't need to bring me up a wheat recipe because that's not good for my gluten tolerance but immediately brings me up the appropriate um a gluten-free recipe instead right that's the the the, the big thing and interestingly if you look into the marketplace right outside google uh, which obviously has it you go to google type in whatever and you get that side panel with additional information this is graph uh, if you look, as an example, at the the the, the cognitive search um, wave, I believe Forrester calls it, and, and and I believe Insights Engine, Quadrant or so, uh, Gartner calls it, and you look at some of our of our, of our cherished uh, competitors, nobody really has managed to combine this data driven approach to data with that more semantic approach into single product, as I said, except Google. Um, and I think there is a reason for that. Um, I, again, a bit simplified. Um, you know, there is this quote of "Men are from Mars and women are from Venus." People in the data-driven side think probabilities. Machine learning is all about probabilities. Whereas people on the semantic side think in terms of linkages. There is a linkage, or there is no linkage. That's pretty binary. So, to fuse those two things into one single thing isn't an easy feat, not even from the technology side, but sort of from the mental side. how you go at that. Once you do that, however, you have um something that is extremely valuable. You have a computational knowledge object, and that's what we do. that's what this is all about, yeah.
0: Okay. So you're linking the probability and then the direct linkage that you see through patterns to to massively simplify what you said,
1: right? Yeah. I (laughs) will remember that one. I (laughs) (laughs) will.
0: Well, you know that you know all the details, right? Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm I'm explaining it like uh, I'm a five-year-old to other people, right? Right now. So, so in looking at that, I guess like Walk us through this specific example of the, the top line revenue, right? With the account manager, you know, what kind of data do you look at? How do you approach it? What kind of, you know, programming language do you leverage for that? Like, just get, I mean, don't get super technical, but would just love the, a specific example for that, um, specifically on the account management side, because a lot of uh, revenue leaders listen to the show as well.
1: All right. So take that industrial company. That industrial company that I spoke about before, myself by name, they produce industrial foams. Um, they have a plethora of systems. They have Salesforce. They have uh, SharePoint. They have uh, email, sort of shared email inboxes. They have mm-hmm. uh, quality right. quality databases and about two or three other sources. Um, stitch all of these together. Other people do that as well, like we do. Put that all into a box, and you still have a mess. I might then type in X, Y, Z, and it returns me result from SharePoint. It returns my result from Salesforce. But I'm not much smarter than before. I have it only in one place. That's in itself a predict- productivity improvement. Good stuff. Now, the next level you do from a technical side, and there we use a plethora of technologies we use on the top level React for sort of the visualization, sort of the dashboarding and all the rest. We use as a coding language predominantly Python, so it's the middle thing. That's sort of what holds it all together. And then sort of in the back end, we build the shoulder of giants. We use Elastic as an as an, um, TF-IDF type database that is a an, an full text search engine type database. We use a couple of other open source products uh, sort of in the back end. Right? That, those are the three layers of of, of, of of the platform. Now, in the moment we had um, uh, stitch our our platform into such an environment, we, as an example, take all of Salesforce data. Now, Salesforce data, as an example, is interesting. It might not fit an academic definition of a taxonomy, but in Salesforce, you say you have an account, um, you have mm-hmm. a parent account, and under the account, you have some yep. contacts. That essentially is nothing yep. else in a taxonomy, right? So why not take this and with that, start to populate your graph? And then at the same time, in the inbound pipeline, you as an example, take those call notes. You take the emails out of those shared inboxes. And then in the platform itself, you have sort of three steps, gather, understand, act. We, in that first step, connect all these data sets, and then we start to extract the key entities. As an example, if you have now an account name in Salesforce, company XYZ, In the email, are you able to identify that same company? If yes, with a certain (laughs) level of probability, you link those two together, they might actually talk about the same customer of yours. And so you play that game in step one. And then in step two, we have a model catalog that by now is way north of 100 different models, business expansion as an example, product announcements, um, sentiment scoring, and all that. With which we classify that inbound textual data sets so after that second step we pretty much understand where in that universe of data is a customer as an example expressing frustration at uh, i don't know a quality issue that hasn't been resolved in the past two weeks that's step two and now step three we go to the very beginning say you would be in the account team ryan uh, you obviously want to be informed about if a customer has a propensity to churn, because if you know that early enough, uh, at least in my case, my my best upsells was often with customers that were a bit on the frustrated end with our product, but we went deep in and really listened to them and took care of of their issues. And if you do that Mm -hmm. at an early stage, you actually not only avoid them churning, but often you make them your biggest champions. So in the moment, we see such a signal to effectively in the morning tell you either directly integrate into Salesforce or sending you an email or other type of notification, Ryan, call this customer because of X, Y, Z is the notch um, that we bring to you. It's an up to you to call the fox and 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 uh, work your magic. But we help you sort of to allocate your time wisely out of, say, if you, as a key account person in a B2B setup, you look after, say, 40, 50 accounts, depending on the on the, on the sales bag you, you're responsible for, you will not always know of those 50 accounts, everything at any moment. The system can do that for you. It can simply say, right in the morning, these are the three customers that call about these three things. So that's about what we do. Well, let um, me we that, that's a
0: great explanation. Let me, let me pause on that. So what, what would you say, like, though, because I mean, I'm re- super hyper familiar with churn and, and cause of why people churn and, and things yep. like that, of your data set, right? Like, what would you say are the top three reasons why people churn most of the time based on all the data that you've seen?
1: So we predominantly look at unstructured data sets, textual data sets, right? Um, uh, the top three reasons that I've seen in those sets, and it might be different if you look at the simple numeric side of things, right? In the in the in in in, in, in these, and, and we sell predominantly to large, to mid up market to large um, companies, so the the M and the M side of an SME side and the large enterprises, and often these are B two B sales themselves. So on the other side, don't sit retail customers, but on the other side, sit other enterprise customers. It's important to know. Because right. if you have, say, uh, if you're Verizon and you have gazillions of, of retail customers, our software maybe wouldn't be that good for that because that's in numbers game. But if on the other side sit, like in that case of that industrial company as an example, sit, sit uh, suppliers to the to, to car manufacturing companies, that's a B2B sale as well. So one of the top three reasons I've seen across the board, not within that company specific, but across the board, um, obviously product issues, product effects, Things not working as promised, um, one reason. But then we also saw other reasons, right? Um, that people felt not being taken serious, right? Um, they are a customer to yours, so they want to be loved, and you don't love them. Uh, you treat them in an unnice way. You don't give them the attention they maybe deserve or maybe don't deserve, but still kind of like seek, you know, emotional things. I have nothing really to do with with with, right. with our business decisions, but at the end of the day we are all humans um and and if you capture those signals you you can you can turn things around that's the second reason and then the third reason again um issues like um as an example you have not reacted to issues in a in a in a a timely fashion um you let things drag on um uh, things don't work out maybe also a change of direction of the business in question but then it starts to dwindle out so top number one reason actual product doesn't really work out how it should second reason, um, more personal elements where you didn't take your customer seriously and they didn't want to continue with you.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I mean, so it sounds like product love responsiveness, right. Or, um, yeah. handling a problem. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, so that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Cause like I, I see number two happening all the time. It seems mm-hmm. like SaaS companies forget about that, um, taking care of the customer from an emotional perspective. I mean, have you seen that from your interactions as something that's, and here's what I would say, a lot of times, and this isn't for every company, but most organizations are focused on product, product, product. They forget mm-hmm. about the actual human. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's common from what you've seen as well? Or is it a mix?
1: Uh, maybe a mix. I, I can't speak for other companies. Look, my, my light bulb moment uh, was a couple of years ago when I run this uh, local search engine. Um, our customers were ad customers, those S, not out of the SME segment. That was a corner shop, that was a, a restaurant, uh, um, a hairdresser or so, right? People who spend with us maybe two, $3,000 a year for ads online. And at one stage, I was in the neighbourhood of Lausanne, which is a part, a town in, in the western part of Switzerland, and I met with my regional sales management. And one guy, if you looked at their numbers, it was really kind of like, literally over a cliff. It was it was real bad, and we all wondering what happened there because I spent so much time with these sales guys, and it's really tough sales. Uh, the clock is set back every month on the first. Uh, it's pure commission, and it's thirty days. And after thirty days, you know how much you earned. Uh, it's the real thing right it's not kind of like um other it's, it's really the real thing anyway and at the very same moment i get a call and uh, we had an iron rule in my company um, i spent about a day also in customer service if somebody did misbehave uh, couldn't kind of like watch the language that immediately would get transferred to me when i was available and there was this one person he literally yelled at me. And after five minutes of kind of like calling him down and saying, I'm listening to you for as long as you don't yell. Uh, for about five minutes we, we had the common agreement that yelling isn't a good way forward. He explained the situation. So this was someone um it was in the early days of Google Maps that was the president of that neighborhood, that community, uh, little little town in, in 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 the western part of Switzerland. And they just inaugurated a new business park. And build two new roads. Now, neither the business park nor those two roads were visible in Google Maps. Have you ever tried to call Google? Good luck with that. Right. And at the time, there yeah. were a couple of other map providers around. Wasn't yet as consolidated as today. No chance. So we were literally the first ones that you could call and yell at. <laughs> right. And we at the time used a local provider called Endoxon for our mapping technology. So, you know, I couldn't resolve his problem on Google Maps and the others. I could help him resolve that on Endexon. And I could point him to the right way to, at the time it was called MapQuest and Google and so on, where to actually make himself known to adjust um, the maps to have those two new streets and that business park um, in the maps. Right? Mm-hmm. I went back a couple of months later to that um, uh, place in Lausanne and reviewed the numbers again there was one area that went literally through the roof in sales numbers. That one, because the president of this commune of this local town, he was happy. We helped him, even though we couldn't resolve the problem Mm -hmm. with him immediately. But we listened to him. I listened to him personally as boss of the whole thing. We, I think even sent him a box of chocolate or so to sweeten things up. Um, And whenever my, Colleagues then from the sales team went to that neighborhood. Apparently, the people talked possibly about what we did for them, and they bought a ton of ads with us. That's what I meant. That was my light bulb moment. Since then, I put personally a lot of time into looking after customers, talking with them, listening to them. Not so much on the technical side. My technical team is a gazillion times better than me at resolving all of those technical issues. But simply listening to them. What, have mm-hmm. they, what, what, what is their view? What is their perspective? they might look at the very same thing from a very different angle. And and if I understand it a bit better, if I can be helpful in maybe resolving one or two issues after all, I think that creates a bond of loyalty. And at the end, business is not just about transactions. At the end, especially in an enterprise setting where you often tie yourself to each other for a longer time, um, business is also about relationships. It's also about you know being comfortable if you pick up the phone and talk to the other person about something that isn't working.
0: That's a, I, I think that's uh that's a, a great, but often overlooked point. And uh, unfortunately we're up on time though. So I think that's a, a great spot to end on a uh, great note. So uh, Dorian, the, that was um, a really, really great insight, at, you know, from the technical aspect to the impact of just simply listening and, and, connecting with people do for you. So wh- where can people find you? Where can they find out more about Squirrel? And then we'll wrap things up.
1: Yeah, they can obviously find a lot of stuff on uh, uh, squirrel.com, our website. We have an AI hub there in a very timely fashion. Also, we're going to do a couple of webinars around how to make use of these large language models in conjunction with, with uh, Enterprise Search and all that. Uh, they're wonderful, all oh, no doubt. It's game changer there's one thing though all of these large language models chat gpt inclusive have one fatal flaw which is called hallucination if you want to make them usable in enterprise context you cannot live with hallucination the wrong answer can be not good so how to deal with that how to take hallucination out of large language models we found a way. Come and join us on those webinars. Come to our website. All details there. I'm more than happy to also, if you approach me direct, Dorian Asker is my email. DorianAsker.com is my email. Always happy to talk. Always happy to share insight. And Ryan, it's great to have you, that you have me on your show. It was really fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, man. I love it. I can talk to you for another hour, but unfortunately, we're up time. 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 All right, Dorian. <laughs> all right, man. Sounds good. Thanks for being on. We'll see you all in the next episode.
1: Thank you, Ryan.
0: Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering